Hello, this is Dr. Tia Barnes, and welcome to the Scholarly Self-Care Podcast, where we will talk all about the SEL, or social-emotional learning, in self-care. This podcast is for educators, parents, and caregivers of children and youth. Each week, we will talk about your well-being to put you in a better space to support the well-being of the children in your life. Ready to get started? Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited today because I have an amazing guest. She is my friend and long-term research partner, Christina Cipriano. So Dr. Cipriano holds a dual appointment at the Yale School of Medicine as an assistant professor at the Yale Child Study Center and also as the director of research at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Dr. Cipriano's research focuses on the systematic examination of social and emotional learning in the promotion of pathways to optimal developmental outcomes for traditionally marginalized student and teacher populations. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thank you so much, Tia. It's really an <laughs> honor and a joy to be here. I'm so glad that you were able to take the time to come on and, and talk. I think that you have such an amazing story and you know the work you do is so significant. And it also links so well to this podcast. And so I'm so glad to have you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Great. So I wanted to start off by just having you um, tell a little bit about your story. So how did you get into this world of social emotional learning? And then just information about you, whatever you feel like sharing. Sure. Yeah. So gosh, I haven't gotten to talk about this in a little bit. So I am a first generation high school graduate. And so I start there because my parents um, instilled in us the importance of, you know, go to school because you don't want to be like us. You don't want to have to work all of these jobs, jobs that don't bring you joy. We don't care what you do. We want you to be happy and go to school so you can find your happiness. So school was a very important part of my life. And then I also realized pretty quickly in elementary school that I needed to kind of really um, latch in and build relationships with my teachers along the way. And that, you know, when it got to a point where what I was learning in elementary school was kind of past where I could get support from parents, I then could, you know, it was just reaching out to teachers and, and, and making, you know, friends with teachers, getting support, getting guidance on, you know, whether it's how to do your science project or how to understand, you know, that scientific calculator and all of those good things, right? So teachers played a significant role in my life, so much so that I went to, um, I graduated from high school, I went to college, I studied political science, and I minored in philosophy and education studies. I went to Hofstra University on Long Island, where I'm originally from. And um, while I was there, I had a professor who was my ed studies capstone advisor. And he said to me, you know, Chris, what are you going to do after school? And I was like, I, I um, you know, I want to go to graduate school. I think I want to be a professor or I want to go to law school. I had like, kind of a lot of ideas about policy and education. And um, he said, well, um, I think you should apply to Harvard and I'm going to pay your application fee to go there. And I said, that's just silly because that's for like rich, smart kids. And I'm not like part of that pedigree. I don't I don't come from that line. Like and and he's like, no, 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 you're going to you're going to apply. I'm, I'm going to write your uh, you know, I'm going to uh, pay your application fee. And all I want in return is a mug to put on my desk. And so, you know, lo and behold, I ended up getting accepted to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, which was really incredible um, and got accepted to a number of other like great programs, too. But I will mention that I, I got rejected from my safety school, which was a state school in New York during wow. that process. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I remember because I got that rejection first and I thought my life is over. 
like this was what I was going to do. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted to go to school. I wanted to stay in school and continue learning and thinking about education and its intersection with policy and human rights and the betterment of all. Anyway, long story short, while I'm in my master's program at the Grad School of Education, I had the privilege and honor of taking class with Howard Gardner, Mm -hmm. so the father of multiple intelligences. And I was not a psychology major. I had actually not ever taken a psychology course, but I ended up getting a seat in his class because I wrote, this is funny, I wrote an essay. You did like entrance exams in the form of an essay. So you had to write an essay for the competitive classes on why you deserved a seat in the class. And so I wrote an essay on why I deserved a seat in this class because I had read his book on multiple intelligences and I I had an opinion and we'll just, we'll leave that there for now. And so anyway, he granted me a seat in his class, which was incredible. So it was my first psych class with Howard Gardner. And um, I learned so much. And at the end of that class, he did exit interviews. And so he said, you know, what are are you going to do now? Like, what's your plans for after graduation? And I said, well, you know, I I, I think I want to go to like JD, PhD programs and in ed policy and law. And um, he looked at me and he said, Chris, you are the epitome of an applied developmental psychologist, but you don't even know it because you haven't taken the courses. He's like, you talk about statistics and you keep a face on them. You understand children and families. He's like, I'm going to show you some programs you should apply to and I will I will write you letters of support to go. And so, you know, when Howard Gardner pays attention, you, you listen, right? So I, I applied to my JD, PhD programs. I applied to the applied developmental programs. And I was really uh, thrilled and honored to end up getting placed at Boston College in the Lynch School of Education in applied developmental and ed psychology. Anyway, so that's a very long way to get to the fact that I ended up in the psychology field meandering my way in, but really with an attention towards what does the science mean in practice, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, more like above and beyond the putting kids in desks and desks and classrooms and classrooms and schools, but thinking about the broader context of relationships and interactions and, you know, what students are we talking about, where and how, with a great sensitivity towards perhaps the students and teachers who are not necessarily showing up in the empirical base and in the literature. And and that's been something that has really been a stable part of my academic identity, even as my degree experience has changed <laughs> over time. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing story, Chris. And I'm glad that you shared it. So it seemed like you talked about this thread of relationships with your teachers mm-hmm. throughout and it kind of, you know, how teachers pushed you mm-hmm. in the direction and, and um, encouraged you and motivated you. And I love that because I feel like even in your work now, that is still such, you know, a pertinent part. And so it's amazing to hear how you experienced it and are now studying and trying to support teachers and being able to support their students. Absolutely. I feel a tremendous urgency to support educators and make sure that they're in receipt of the latest science and practice to support them and also make sure that science and practice are working for the teachers in the name of the teacher. They understand what's happening in the classroom, that they're sensitive to the beautifully diverse needs of our classrooms and our schools in our country and and worldwide. And so for me, social emotional learning is a pathway and it's a driver of these conversations, right? It underscores our ability to learn and to teach, to parent, I'm a parent now, four, four little ones, um, you know, partners and, and your relationships with your parents, your spouses, uh, your friends. And so it really has been a driver for me. And, you know, one other kind of thing I'll mention there is that after my doc program, I postdoced at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. At that time, we were the Health, Emotion, and Behavior Lab. And that's where, where we met, Tia, right, many, many moons ago. And at that time, you know, I was really brought in to think about social emotional learning 
for self-contained settings. And so that was what I was hired on is the work that Tia and I have now built together almost a decade later. Let's go ahead and age ourselves. So it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, it, it's wild to think that, you know, of all we've done and all of the many babies we've had along the way as well, right, as academic moms. But at the same time, there's just like so much more to do. And so I feel a tremendous urgency and I just feel really fortunate to get to be a part of that and to work with you and, and others in the field towards that end. And I feel fortunate to be able to work with you. So you mentioned that there's still a lot to do. Can you talk a little bit more about like what you see as the big areas that we still need to focus in on um, in schools, particularly around like social and emotional well-being? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we're closer than we've ever been to these answers, but we really don't have the fully defined understanding of who, how, what, and why of SEL, right? We know that it works for some children in some cases in some ways, right? We have the, you know, empirical precedents that come from, you know, the academic standards of how to operate RCTs and what are the right ingredients of interventions for particular sectors of our populations. We know, and we can talk a bit about ideal conditions. We know that there are, you know, multiple models of what is a social emotional competency, what is a framework and how to go about it. We know that systematic cell is better in the long term. But within those, you know, those bodies of literature, there's still a lot of holes. There's a lot of area where we need to like further understand. I mean, I most recently have been spending a tremendous amount of my time and energy and, and you've heard me rant about this quite a bit this past year, but like we don't, we don't understand within group heterogeneity within SEL. So what that means is like we don't understand the differences for the different student experiences with the same curriculum. Yeah. And that is critical right now when we think about what is social emotional learning, right? And when thinking about embracing the perspective and the agency and the autonomy that each learner and educator brings to the table, we need to be able to do multi-group analyses, if like from a methodological standpoint, we need to be able to tease apart those experiences, because if we're not, then we can't say that it's culturally responsive. We can't say that it's universally accessible. And so that is a lot of where I'm spending my time these days and, and trying to tease that apart. Yeah. And it's very much needed. So thank you for that. So I wanted to ask you, and I think you in a way alluded to this before, but how do you define social and emotional well-being? So thinking about the uh, competencies and skill sets that underscore your common humanity, your ability to be healthy physically and psychologically, your ability to be a good teacher, a learner, a partner. So we drive at relationships, then also understanding that empathy and that awareness of yourself in the context of others. I love that. I think that's a great summary of it. Thank you. What is one message that you want to share with others about social emotional wellness? Oh my goodness. Only one? Well, it matters now more than ever. Did you have more than one message you wanted to share? <laughs> Feel free. Well, I also just for any educators or school administrators or researchers who may be listening in, I also would share that even though it matters now more than ever, it's still going to matter after this. You know, there's been this national attention and spotlight on cell right now and how a cell can support us through the pandemic and the compounding traumas of 2020. And there's a wave of momentum and it is very exciting and important and necessary to think about teaching and learning and family functioning right now. Absolutely critical and foundational. But we can't look away from it when the sun sets on this collective trauma that we're moving through. We can't, we can't walk away from it because that will not, that would not be in the service of sustaining 
health and well-being for our nation, for our students, for our learners, for our families moving forward. Yeah. And I love that you bring that up because also what I was thinking about as you were talking was this idea of even though right now we're going through a collective trauma, students, adults go through trauma on a daily basis. And the fact that we are all going through something right now, of course, is highlighting the SEL piece. But even when we're no longer in the situation, there will still be plenty of people who are dealing with trauma, inequities, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And they are going to continue to need support or we as educators need to know how to support them. Exactly. And also to not perpetuate the inequities further and to begin to heal and renew and bring us all together. I mean, in many ways, the experience of 2020 has been a an opportunity for perspective taking at scale yes. with, with inequities and trauma and like layers of that. I was just doing a little bit of writing about this, but it's like something that, you know, what is most consistent, I would suppose, or most predictable about 2020 is that the experience household to household is unique, right? And it was like that before, but even more so now. Mm -hmm. And so what are we going to do with that information to inform our teaching and our learning and our policymaking and our family functioning moving forward now that we have had that experience? Like, wouldn't that be the silver lining, right? That we can Mm -hmm. learn and grow together through this so that we aren't falling back into inequitable systems and inefficient systems after. I'm clinging on to that. (laughs) No, I love that. And I think that is so very much needed. And I hope that, I also hope that that is what ends up happening. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I want to stay on this topic because next I was going to ask you about your self-care, but I want to stay on this topic for a Mm -hmm. little bit more. So in considering this movement of SEL and the fact that you are hopeful that this will just continue to grow, what are some things that you think we need in place for that to happen? Like, I'm just wondering about that. So we need to practice what we preach. So that it ties very much into your self-care um, mm-hmm. questioning that is likely to come, right? Is that we need to uh, make sure that our leaders and our districts are prioritizing the emotional health and well-being of our teachers and giving them that time to be able to tend to themselves so they can then be available to teach and instruct and authentically show up for their students and their families. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just saying that, oh, I'm going to prioritize SEL in my 2021 reopening hybrid fill in the blank plan, right? Which we know nearly all states, all public schools in, in the country, so nearly all states referenced it. But you can't just like say it and not do it. Like there's there's actions after that, right? So giving teachers that time, allowing for the PD and building it in and not and not just once, but maybe it's once a month or once a week. It has to sustain. It has you have to keep going back to it, right? I, I mean, this is hard work. And we have to continuously allow ourselves time to reflect and renew and and learn through it. And so leaders need to build that in and practice what they preach. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think something else that comes to mind for me is also based on what you said about the teachers and their own well-being and making sure that they're engaged in well-being is even thinking about the leaders and where are they in terms of their own social and emotional wellness. Yes. I mean, it's impossible, right? They're being asked Mm -hmm. to make decisions and be held accountable because of fractured systems, right? Um, You know, the budgetary requirements and constraints and that they're, they're being asked to make decisions right now under 
situations that make it next to impossible to, you know, account for the broadest diversity of your school system. And so it's like, there's no playbook writing it as we go with increasing demands. Everybody is like filled up to here and holding the emotional labor of everyone around them. Um, and without the right strategies and support and time, it's a very dangerous situation to be in. And so I don't envy our school leaders right now. I empathize greatly and advocate in support of that, that time um, being made available for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when you talk about this idea of practicing what you preach, I definitely see that with you in terms of you practicing what you preach, not only as a researcher and a scholar and an educator, but then also as a parent. So can you talk about some of the ways that you're supporting the social and emotional well-being of your family? Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was so nice of you to say. So when the pandemic started, we created our first emotionally intelligent charter for our families or family level charter. So I had like worked with my kids schools before about how to do this at this classroom level. But this was the first time for me that I really took it home and and my kids are little. And Mm -hmm. so we took it home and we said, how do we want to feel in our house? And what are we going to commit to each other in order to um, make sure we all feel this way and holding each other accountable to that? So can you talk a little bit more about the charter? I think you're getting into it in terms mm-hmm. of saying yeah. how you want to feel, but for those yeah. who may not be familiar. Sure. So the charter is one of the anchor tools of the ruler approach to social emotional learning that is housed at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And so within the charter, um, there are two questions that guide the practice. So the first one is, you know, how do you want to feel? And so as a collective, so as a either a classroom community, as a family unit, as a faculty, as an organization, you identify upwards of five words, feeling words of how you want to feel in your day-to-day interactions with one another. And then the second step is to identify what you're going to do. So what your commitments are to ensure that everyone feels that way. And so you come up with different actions or behaviors or strategies of what you will do as a group. And this obviously looks different depending upon, you know, the age of the group, how you're spread, But what's beautiful about it is that it's a living document. It's something that you can continuously revisit and reference. So like in my house, we had one up that was from March to August. We made a brand new one with our nanny, with my son's care team. We had a whole, like it was a much bigger group in September because we were like all in for this fully hybrid 2021 school year um, of how we want to feel in our interactions with other kids and adults interacting and revisit it. Now, you know what? I don't feel heard right now. And so we're going to use that as an opportunity to have a conversation so that we can work through it together. I love it. Love it. And I will also definitely link to the YCEI's anchor tools so that anyone that's interested in learning more about that can do so. Great. And I will say that we have our kind of back to school resources that are up, including webinars that my colleagues on the Ruler for Families team made that are specific to how to make a charter in your home and kind of walk you through it all free and publicly available, as well as how to work through the charter exercise with your classroom if you are remote or hybrid. So what are some like easy strategies that you can pull in to make it accessible? I didn't know that. That's great. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. we'll definitely make sure that we link to that so that those that are listening have that. Great. So next... I want to talk a little bit about your social emotional wellness and some things that you do to support yourself. So can you describe your self-care journey and what you've learned as part of it? Oh, goodness. Well, (laughs) um, I mean, my journey was certainly bumpy. I certainly did not always prioritize myself in the service of others. I definitely stood in the space squarely of give, give, give. 
especially with my three younger ones when they were younger, they're all 15 months apart. So that was just a, a pretty chaotic existence and time where I wish I was good about it, but I was not. Um, it was a transformative journey for me when I did start to attend to my own health and wellness. And so I started with, for me, it was after I had my third child, I started with, okay, I want to, I want to understand what people say about like running because mm-hmm. running was like a free, like, this is how I saw it. It was something that was free and it was accessible. If I had some babysitting for a short period of time that I could do something for myself that didn't cost anything. I could get some air, get me outside. Mm-hmm. And so I started with, I'm going to run to one song and then I'm going to walk. And then it was, I'm going to run to two songs and I'm going to walk. And that was how I started on my, my running journey. And that is for me, my primary form of what I do for self-care. That is a major part of my life now, five and a half years later. So my daughter that I'm referencing. So I started that after she was born when they were little and She's going to be six in February. And then I have a a new little one who's 16 months now. I also have, you know, completed three half marathons. I have a goal of running. We're going to hopefully um, get bibs for the Boston Marathon for my my son with special needs in honor of him and and fundraising for him uh, within the next few years, assuming we get to do that again in person. Um, But I run tons of virtual races. I run five days a week. Now I have a, a running plan and a regiment and I, it is my, it is my time. I look forward to it. I go in the morning. I have my plan, my schedule. I still listen to my, my music and my songs. And it, it's like my opportunity to take a minute. And my colleagues now know, they know what days are my like rest days. Uh-huh. And I do my like three days on one day rest. So I don't hurt myself. They know that like, I'm a completely different person. <laughs> at work, and I'm like, I'm shorter with my kids on the rest. It's, it's, I need to find a way to fix that. So if anyone's got strategy for that, let me know. But on the days when I run, I'm just so much more kind of at peace with myself and my interactions with everyone in my world. It's, it's super important to me. Have you tried walking on your rest days? Oh, yeah. But you know what I haven't done? I haven't walked in the morning. So I run early. Mm. I go, I get up early. It's part of, so I get up before the kids. I mean, you have to get up before the kids. <laughs> That's just the reality of life. So I go early and it's quiet. But when I walk, it's later in the day. So I wonder if that's also wonder. a really good point to think about that. And I also do want to mention, I run, but I am not fast. I have not gotten faster over the past five years. I just can tolerate longer distances. So for anyone out there who's like, what does this girl say? And she's crazy. Like, I never got faster. Like, I'm not saying that I'm quick, but I, I just really love it. But your endurance. Great. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. I feel like a lot of the guests that have come on so far mention some form of exercise as mm-hmm. part of their self-care. And so that's great to see like the patterns mm-hmm. that are coming out in terms of what people are doing. So what do you feel like you've learned along the journey? So when you think back to when you had the three little ones, mm-hmm. so after um, your third mm-hmm. daughter or your yeah, mm-hmm. third baby was born, what would you wish that you had known? Like, what would you tell your past self? Oh, goodness. Um, that you need to take that time. That it's so important that that small investment for you, it, it has dividends across your day, across those interactions. Mm-hmm. I, am, I am such a more functional parent when it comes to, you know, responding to my children in ways that are most responsive and attentive to their emotions. And the older I get, the older my kids get, the further I am into it, the more that I'm able to see in others when they snap or 
you know, kind of respond a bit too quickly. And similarly in myself, when I have a moment that I can then immediately call out and say, you know what, I should not have like, hold on, or let me take a minute to take that breath. But when they were really little, that was really hard, really, really hard to navigate. So if I was taking better care of myself, it likely would have, I would imagine it would have been more productive. So it helped you with your regulation. Yeah. Absolutely. And your awareness. That's what I'm hearing you say, which is interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I've definitely noticed, especially I, during this pandemic time, right? So there's just, there's yeah. kind of like more time, the minutes are longer, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, this bizarre reality of like time kind of standing still and moving fast at the same time. And so I, I feel like I've, I've certainly been working on broadening my social awareness and my awareness of myself and others in context. And, and that for me, I've, I've definitely could see reactions more so now than I did before in myself and others. Love that. Love that. How are some of the ways you're working on that? Just in case somebody's like, I want to work on my social awareness or my self-awareness. Like, what are some of the things you're doing? Yeah. So um, just reflecting on the interaction is a great place to start. So reflecting on what happened. So if it's like, I'm thinking about like how a lot of ours come with like dinner time with our kids. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes we're at the ages now. So we're eight, seven, five and 16 months. So we're like, um, the kids can get pretty silly pretty fast and it can go from like fun, silly to you know, unproductive slash dangerous slash messy slash whatever, right? So like, it it just like turns in like a second. And um, I've certainly spent a good amount of time reflecting on like either what I did that maybe moved it into turning in a way that like ended up, you know, with kids getting in trouble or like losing something or gaining something like, like if there was something I said in that interaction that could have, that maybe set things off in a way if I could have found a way to, you know, keep it more productive or contained. So um, that's just been one space with uh, taking that time to reflect okay, so and also having conversations with others, I think is another big piece. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so when you're having these conversations, like what are the sort of things you're asking? I know I'm not getting into the nitty gritty, but yeah, but like, what would you do? So what would you do? Would you do something different? So like, if it's with my partner, we like kind of, you know, we have done many a debrief over the course of the pandemic, um, in our house with interactions, which is something that we frankly did not have the time for before. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was just not like with, with work travel schedules and suddenly not traveling, we, we have a lot more time for that. And I think it's been very productive because we're able to kind of reflect on, you know, what we did and how we felt and like what we wish we could have done better to help to support us to be, you know, better parents mm-hmm. uh, with our kids. I love that. So now I want to talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing specifically surrounding students with disabilities, teachers, and then also families. So can you tell me a little bit more about that work and then also looking at it within the context of social and emotional well-being? Sure. Thank you. So that's, that's the work that brought us together. Um, so very happy to talk about that. So, you know, many moons ago, we started the Relate Project that was really focused on evaluating and improving interactions in um, social interactions between teachers, paras, and students in self-contained special education classrooms. So the idea was that, you know, if we could think about what's happening in classrooms where there's not been a lot of research done, where we haven't had an opportunity to look that we could then help to support with interventions that would begin to improve the social emotional health well-being of the educators in these classrooms, as well as the broad diversity of students who are educated there. And that work has been personally very transformative for me over, over the course of my academic career, because 
I, you know, learned so much in getting to engage in different types of classrooms. So, you know, alternative and therapeutic and separate and correctional and many different types of classrooms along the way and, and met a wide array of students with different characteristics yet and, and different strengths. And then I met educators who had, you know, varying degrees of training, but similarly, were all sharing the same experience of feeling as though they were overlooked and underserved in the education system, that they had specialized training that nobody else seemed to really acknowledge in the accountability structures that they seemed largely absent in the national narratives um, and, you know, didn't fit the mold within the assessments, nor was was the PD relevant to them. They didn't meet their needs. So anyway, that has been something that has certainly been a a large driver of our work as we think about, you know, how we can best support social, emotional health and well-being. So um, part of the transformation of this experience has been that along the way, I became a parent of a child with a significant disability. And that was certainly not something that I even had on my radar early on in the work. And I was a whole other context when, you know, navigating the system as a parent with a child with an evolving medical needs and understanding the types of classrooms that he would be serviced in and his access to social emotional health and support and what his teachers were or were not receiving simultaneously. So seeing that. And so we've been doing a lot of work over the course of our like latter piece of our career now in, you know, providing professional development to teachers in Paris and working through the Council for Exceptional Children and and other, you know, major organizations in the field that really speak to the need for supporting teachers in Paris and instructional aid and support staff. And now parents, as we move into this pandemic of, you know, parents are the other educator in the room and caregivers to help our students, you know, access the curriculum and, and navigate the, the difficulties of this time. And so our science from self-contained settings has become all the more relevant because we are in many ways all living in these little self-contained classrooms right now as we're in our Zoom rooms. So Thank you. Thanks for talking a little bit more about that. I think something that I, we have never like sat down and discussed fully is what would you consider like your main takeaway from our work? I'm curious. Oh my gosh. There's so many ways to interpret I know, that question. I know. So I started to talk about this a little bit before, right? That there's the acknowledgement of how there can be so many disparate educational experiences, yet they all shared a commonality in that their teachers and paras and all of the you know, amazing professionals who are working in these classrooms shared similar feelings, like that they were not serviced and not represented in the national movement, that PD was not relevant for them, that they didn't know where to go for social emotional learning and support. And so that was a big driver for our work and continuing to do our work. Even when, you know, early on in our career, funders were like, no, that's not, there's not enough kids in that sample. Like, we're not going to publish that. That's too small. So, um, you know, but I mean, Tia, you've heard me say this, but like we have, we have many a notes of all the rejections that we received along the way because many, many foundations and organizations and high profile publications and journals were not interested in sub-separate and substantial, you know, um, classrooms and and self-contained settings and why are you looking at or talking about those kids? And so we, we quoted, we kept all those. I kept all those notes, right? So I, I joked that maybe one day when I get tenure, we'll publish that expose, but I don't know. <laughs> it might be sooner. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, yeah. I might need joking. to put that out there sooner. So we'll yeah. I was going to say, it's definitely something we could. Mm-hmm. I think for me, one of the, the big things that has come to me, like through our work specifically, was just the need for SEL at the multiple levels. Because 
I think before I started working with you, my focus was mainly on students. Like, what do we need to do Mm -hmm. to support the students? And how are we going to support the students? And that was like it, you know? But Mm -hmm. then when we started going into classrooms and just seeing all the things that the educators were going through and like how stressed out they were, it was like, this is not going to work in terms of us asking them to support well-being if we're not supporting them. And then like since then also like doing work in terms of some of the evaluation work that I've been doing um, Mm -hmm. at CRESP and seeing how the teachers need the support of the principals. And so if the administrators aren't in a good space, they're not able to support the teachers. And then for the administrators, they're like, well, the district, you know, isn't Mm -hmm. making this a priority. So we can't make it a priority. So it's just like in the end, everyone needs SEO. Everyone needs to know how important it is. And Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's just like all areas. That's why there's so much, I mean, back to what we were saying at the beginning and why I have so much hope with the national spotlight on cell right now. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's being prioritized um, across most states in the country as an important and urgent use of time, like in resources, and there's funding allocated to it. There's movement to, you know, make assessments and systematic cell more accessible. And so I just don't want that to go away because we know that it needs to be part of a broader system of supports in order to sustain and that we can't just like drop it in on Wednesday or drop it in for the months left of 2020 and then like pull back on it. In order for it to be effective, we need to continuously do the work at every level and we need to see that reflected in the policies, you know, and the accountability structures. So it really does come from the top down. Yeah, yeah. Something else that I've been considering and I'm not sure what the answer is right now, but it'd be good to talk to you about it. Is just how can, because we know for parents, it's also important for parents and communities to be involved. But we know like from the school level, of course, the district can then, you know, put down policies and Mm -hmm. requirements. But how do we get parents more involved in social emotional learning and, Mm -hmm. you know, get them not that they're not, because I think a lot of parents are including it in what they're doing at home, but how do we connect them more with the schools so that we have like this continuous? Um... Yeah, I mean, so many programs and approaches to SEL offer like parent components. Yeah. And there also are also are social emotional approaches and programs that are specific to parents mm-hmm. that offer teacher components, right? And so I think at the end of the day, What you'd like to see is that, you know, for systemic SEL implementation, that whatever program or approach your district or school is adopting or your teacher is adopting in their classroom, that they're carrying that over into their interactions with the child's home life. So it's infused into the homeworks and the assignments and the assemblies and the, you know, parent nights. And there's plenty of resources of how to do that effectively. And like, if a parent has something that they bring to like their PTA, that it then gets infused across the classroom in the school. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you know, for it to be systemic and sustainable, you're providing that school, that classroom, that school community, parents included with a common language. Yeah. Right. And that common language that, you know, for us at, at Ruler at the YCI, that like for common language, that emotions matter and that we, you know, we recognize them, we acknowledge them and, and we co-regulate them together. And here's how we do that. And giving parents those tools, the same tools that children are learning about with their teachers so that they can learn about them together and grow with them as a school community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I love how you talked about the parents seeing it modeled in terms of when they come to the school and have those interactions, because I, I feel like like for 
some of the schools that I either interact with or even with my children's school that that's more or less missing. Um, like they'll have the intervention or they'll have the the lessons and they're like, oh, here's this, it's like an add-on. Here's this parent part if you want to take the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, to- but it's like on you. It's not kind of embedded or yeah. a part of it. But if you think about it, right, like as parents, we want to, we don't necessarily have the time for it or there could be barriers to it, but like you want to know what's happening at your child's school, especially as they grow in age. You want to know about what they're learning in history now more than ever, right? And science, (laughs) right? You want to know. And so if there are words and terms and strategies and practices or routines, core routines, as we call them within Ruler, that can be carried over that are effective and helpful to support the health and well-being of your student while they're at school, well, then like, yeah, of course you'd want to be doing that at home. Mm -hmm. So like providing you know, opening up that pathway for partnerships so that parents have access to it and caregivers have access to it seems very intuitive. Yeah. I know that it then it requires work. So that's why people, you know, everything, everything requires work. So we have to choose to prioritize it. Because if you're doing that, that means you're, you know, and sometimes not doing something else. But at the end of the day, when we think about the competencies and what makes up social emotional learning, right, we know that investing that time and energy in your social emotional health is going to help to support all of those other interactions and all of that other work to be more effective. Yeah, definitely. It's foundational. So mm-hmm. it's definitely worth um, the time. I love that you brought up the fact that it needs to be prioritized. Mm-hmm. And definitely I would say from our work, that's something I've noted, like in certain schools, certain places, mm-hmm. when it is prioritized, I mean, having it even as part of the report card, like there was one school that mm-hmm. actually had a social and emotional subject line on the mm-hmm. report card. And in doing so, they showed that this is something important that mm-hmm. we want to yeah. make sure as a priority. So, yeah. And on, and on that, I'll just add, I, I get, I talk a lot about self-assessment in our work and we talk about like, what gets assessed, gets addressed, right? And yeah. so if you have the assessment, then you're, you know, we're going to devote the time and attention to it. But I just want to be really mindful on what that assessment is because we know that there are, you know, as many of the ways that there are that like a, math or an ELA assessment can go wrong. If any of those pitfalls, there's all of those for SEL and then some. And there's lots of, you know, great work happening in the field right now to promote self-assessment literacy and using the use of the right methodologies and right thinking around what does that assessment score mean and how should it be interpreted um, in the, you know, for the benefit of the student and the teacher and the family. So just a a word of caution there. (laughs) Thank you for bringing that up. No, that's very important because yeah, we've seen how assessments can lead to lots of inequities. And so Mm -hmm. you want to, you know, of course, be mindful of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, the last question that I'm going to ask you is where can our listeners engage with you? So in terms of social media, if you have a website, anything else? Sure. So um, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Chris Sip, and I do have a website at drchrissip.com. And then you can also find me within the YCEI at yci.org or rulerapproach.org. And we've got a lot of really exciting and great projects, some of which you know we talked about today, and then others that I didn't get a chance to talk about, but welcome the opportunities for partnerships. And then lastly, I'll note our shared work not to um, talk too much about our stuff, but so our shared work falls under the umbrella of what we refer to as the Relate Project. I realize we haven't named it yet today. So um, the Recognizing Excellence in Learning and Teaching Project or Relate. And you can get to Relate standalone at relateproject.com as well as through all of those other sites I just mentioned. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Bye. Hey, everyone. So what did you think? 
She was great, right? I'm so glad that Chris decided to come on to today's show and to just share with us about her journey and all of the great, exciting research that she's doing. I'm also glad that I had someone that was able to come on and talk a little bit more about some of the work that we're doing together. I know that I don't talk much about that work, and so it was great to be able to dive into that a little bit. So some of the key things that I took from Chris's interview that really resonated with me. One was that Chris talked about her journey as a first-generation student. So consider for those of you that are working as educators and that are supporting students who may not necessarily come from families that have this legacy of uh, formal education, how the encouragement from you as an educator can put them in such a grand space in terms of it can lead to the trajectory that may go well and way beyond what they've seen before in their past. I talk about this also from my own experience because I had a similar experience to Chris in that I'm also a first-generation student, and it was my educators in the past that have really pushed me to where I'm at today. I remember various educators. So, for example, I remember in fifth grade, I had a teacher who was just always encouraging about my writing and told me, you know, one day you're going to be a writer and one day you're going to do, you know, amazing things and I can't wait to read your work. And Miss Kramer really stood out to me. I've looked for Miss Kramer. So hi, Miss Kramer, if you're out there. I've looked for her, but I haven't been able to get back in touch with her. I also remember my teacher in eighth grade that took the time to teach us about colleges and brought out those big old back in the day college brochures or college catalogs before they put them online and how she took the time to really go through it with us and answered my questions. And that was the first time I learned about this idea of a PhD because, again, I was a first-generation college student. So I didn't, you know, all I knew that you went to college and you got a degree. I didn't know that there were all these types of degrees. And so that really sparked my interest there. And so in Chris's case, you know, she talked about how, you know, she went to college And through her experiences, she was encouraged by different professors to move on to those next steps, whether it was applying to Harvard or beyond that, providing her guidance and encouragement to move into the field that she is now in and that she loves. And so that really stood out to me as something that was just such a key piece of this message that Chris was providing, because in thinking about it as parents and as educators, the fact that our words can do so much in terms of shaping and moving children into a trajectory that they may have never imagined, that we may have never imagined for them, is so incredible. And so I hope that you take that with you as something that you can implement both in your classrooms and in your homes. So another thing that stood out for me was the focus on social emotional learning in diverse populations. And this is definitely an area that, you know, we're now seeing a lot more push for. And this is definitely something that'll come up and you may have noticed has come up in other interviews because it is such a pertinent area and it is such an area that we really need to be sure that we are focusing in on and that we are not creating, in essence, what we did with academics in terms of that achievement gap, that we are making sure that the things that we're creating for schools 
and in schools is actually created with the diversity of our children in mind, whether that be racial and ethnic diversity, children who are dual language learners, whether it also includes students with disabilities, all of those children, um, students from different backgrounds, whatever their background may be. And so we want to make sure that as we are considering how we're incorporating social and emotional learning in our classrooms, in our homes, that we are taking in the child's needs as an individual and using that and shaping the way that we're providing this information and how we're providing it. And so for those of you out there that are educators, this also, of course, is going to mean speaking with families, learning more about families and their cultures and how this idea of social and emotional well-being plays a part and how it looks in their family. And for those of you who are parents, this means taking these concepts of social and emotional well-being and being reflective on how that plays out in your household and what your family's values are and how you can then take these concepts and make them specific within your family and make tweaks to it that fit within your culture and your background. And so don't take social emotional learning just at face value and say, this is just what it is, but take it as something that you can then have this general concept, but then work to incorporate the concepts within your particular environment. Now, with that said, though, the researcher in me does have to say this for you educators out there. This, though, does not mean that we're just going to be taking curricula and adapting it without making sure that it's still going to be effective as is. So curricula are a little bit different. If it's a curriculum, then that's definitely something to talk with whoever wrote the curriculum to find out about how those tweaks can be made. But I'm talking about this in terms of our day-to-day implementation of social and emotional skills. So as you're working with your students in the classroom and things come up, how do you address them and how do you go about teaching those skills? Again, outside of a curriculum, but just in our day-to-day embedded social and emotional learning. All right. So another thing that came up for me was this idea of self-care and reflection. So I loved how Chris was able to take some time with me to dive in a little bit more about her use of reflection and how that has definitely played a key part in some of her growth around self-care and awareness. I also love how she talked about how the self-care and reflection piece can help with your social awareness and in your self-awareness as well. And so that I feel is something that's going to come up a lot as well this season. So again, reflection is a big thing. I know we've talked about it before in the past. I definitely want to get into it a bit more with you all as the season goes on. And then finally linked to that idea of that reflection piece that I loved was how Chris talked about asking questions of herself and others. So I think a lot of times we'll just go about doing things and we won't question why it is that we're doing it. And the same with those in our lives. They'll do things and maybe the things that they do annoy us or they make us feel whatever emotion, positive or negative. And we just take it as is and say, oh, they're doing this thing intentionally or they just do this thing. But we don't really take the time to consider why is it that they're doing that thing? And not just asking that initial question, but then diving deeper. 
So when they say, well, I'm doing this because of this reason, or you tell yourself, I'm doing it because of this reason, diving deeper to then say, okay, but why? Because I think that will help us to gain so much more knowledge and so much more understanding both of ourselves and the people in our lives. And this is a great way to hone in on that idea of intentionality that I've told you is one of those key things that I'm doing this year. So particularly with yourself, as you're asking yourself these questions and you're getting to the root of why it is that you do the things you do, that can really help you to determine and to decide whether or not that action, whatever it may be, or that thought is something that is helpful to you. And is it something that you want to continue to do or not. And so that will also help you as you move through that journey of trying to be intentional. Okay, so those were my key takeaways. I would love to know what were your key takeaways from this. And thank you again to Dr. Cipriano for coming on our podcast. I also wanted to let you guys know that Chris and I were asked to do a podcast with the Council for Children with Behavior Disorders. And That episode is going to be available through CCBD. That is the short name for it. And it is a group that is a part of the Council for Exceptional Children. And so I will link that podcast episode to this episode once it comes out. And yes, please take a listen to it. I feel like we got into a really great conversation that kind of expands on a lot of the topics that we talked about today, but then also with a particular focus on special education. So for those of you who are special educators, I think you would love that episode and you would love other episodes that the Council for Children with Behavior Disorders has. And again, check out the show notes for the link there. I thank you guys so much again for listening to the episode and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please visit drtiabarnes.com for show notes. And while you're there, feel free to leave a note. I'd love to connect. If you like the show, subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about it. Don't forget to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. Thank you to ColetteMcKenzie.com for providing podcast management services for this show. See you all next week. And as always, take care. Take care.